Well, I was standing in front of my television looking for a movie for my kids to watch, and I, I have two little kids. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment and um, looking for a movie, and as, as I scroll through all of the titles, I start to realize there are not that many great movies for little, little kids. I don't know if you've noticed that. But I did kind of settle on one that uh, I thought my daughter would especially like. It was a, it's a classic. Uh, it's called Beauty and the Beast. And I could see my daughter's eyes light up as she saw Belle with her beautiful yellow gown. Uh, but then I noticed her eyes get big. I'm like, yo, you want to watch uh, maybe Beauty and the Beast? She goes, no, I don't want to watch Beauty and the Beast. Because she saw the beast. And she started to get scared. She didn't know what that beast was going to do. Is he getting ready to eat Belle? She has no idea. She's never seen this movie before. And, and I said, Lydia, would it, would it help you to know? You, know you, you have an amazing dad here. If somebody who's seen this movie just a few times said, would it help to know that at the end of the movie, the beast turns into a prince? Would that help? She goes, yeah, that would help. I said, all right, let's watch the movie. She said, no, I don't want to watch Beauty and the Beast. Just did not want to watch it. To this day, we have not seen Beauty and the Beast. But I think we can look at our stories sometimes and we can feel afraid. And, uh, you know, we can see the prices of, of gas and groceries going up and we can begin to wonder, you know, where is this all going? Or maybe you're here today and you're sick. Maybe you're really sick. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently, like our, our family lost a loved one recently, and, and you're grieving, or, or maybe there's a bill that you wonder if you can pay, or if your marriage looks more and more hopeless every day. What do we do when that fear rises up? And here's what I want to show you today. When that fear rises up, I want you to know that we don't have to be defeated. We have hope. We can walk in victory. Um, and the reason we can do that is because we know the end of the story. The end of the story, the beast turns into a prince. At the end of the story, guys, we win. And so we can actually overcome fear. Fear can be overcome today through the power of faith. We're in a series here on the book of Isaiah. And in moments of fear, Isaiah guides us to put our trust in the Lord. And we could go back to chapter 1. Isaiah shows us that the problem is sin. Then in chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. He sees the holiness of God. He sees the sinfulness of his heart and this grace that makes all things new. But if we want to walk in a relationship with God, we learn in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9 that the key is trust. The key to living in a relationship with God is faith. The Bible says if, if we're not firm in our faith, we won't be firm at all. And, Isaiah, and in the book of Isaiah, there's a king, King Ahaz. And Ahaz refuses to trust the Lord. And in that moment, fear wins out over faith. How do we live in faith? How do we overcome fear? 
I think the key for us is to know Jesus Christ. And as the chapters unfold in Isaiah, Isaiah begins to give us a picture of the coming Messiah. He begins to give us prophetic names that tell us who this Savior will be. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. He will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, El Gabor, the mighty God, Prince of Peace. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He is the branch and he is the banner. From a small town in Bethlehem will come the salvation of the world. How amazing is that? If we're going to put our trust in Jesus, if we're going to see fear overcome by faith, we need to know that there is a hope at the end of our story. We need to know that in the end, hope wins. And so today we're, we're coming to the book of Isaiah. And I want to show you the end of the story. We're, uh, we're going to be here in one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament concerning the future. It's Isaiah 24 to 27. You can head over there if you want. This section is sometimes referred to as Isaiah's little apocalypse. Did any of you even know this was in the Bible? I had no idea this was in the Bible. And I'm like, hey, let's do a series on Isaiah. Oh, by the way, we got Isaiah's little apocalypse. This section gives us detailed information concerning events to come. Isaiah's little apocalypse. So just a little overview. We'll be in this section of scripture. This uh, section is four chapters long. Uh, we're not going to study all four chapters. We're going to get bits and pieces, right? But it is four chapters from Isaiah 24 to 27. Maybe you're saying, what does apocalypse mean? The word apocalypse means revelation. By the way, there is a book in the Bible called Revelation, right? So uh, Revelation is actually the big apocalypse. We got the little apocalypse. We got the big apocalypse. And, and this idea of apocalypse, you can see, is just God's unveiling of events at the end of history. And a lot of what we read about in Isaiah's little apocalypse gets mirrored in the book of Revelation. So we'll look at some events here in Isaiah. You're going to see a lot of cross-references to the book of Revelation. There's a, a mirror there. If, you might say that, uh, that uh, if, if the book of Revelation had a little brother, it would be Isaiah's little apocalypse like Revelation's little brother. So we're talking about end time stuff. Hope you're awake. Hope you're caffeinated. Hope you're ready to go. This is an area of theology that's called eschatology, which just means the study of last things. So this is where we'll be today. And today I want to highlight for you five absolutely stunning end time events predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Um, unveiled, and, and these really matter for our life today. And what you're going to see as we look at, at these end-time events is that at the end of our story, when we get to that end, the end of our story is not the triumph of our fears. The end of our story is the triumph 
of Jesus Christ. And that hope is real. That hope makes a difference in our lives right now. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's pray. Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 24. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. What an awesome time it was worshiping you, God. And, and today our worship continues as we come in awe before your scriptures. Thank you that, that we're not uh, clueless about things to come. We thank you, God, that you've given us a picture of our future hope. And that's not something to, uh, to go uh, just... It's not a, a crazy thing, but it's a thing that roots us and anchors us in the hope of eternal life. And so we want to thank you for the eternal inheritance we have in Christ Jesus. I pray that you will encourage our hearts this morning as we study your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I, I, I think this is my first time really getting into this eschatology stuff, and I'm pretty excited so we're going to look here at uh, five end times events unveiled by the prophet Isaiah. It's what we need to know about the end times. And here we go. Let's dive in. Number one, first end time event, God will judge the whole earth. God's going to judge the whole earth. Everything will come underneath the judgment of the Lord. Just to catch you up with where we're at in the book of Isaiah, because we just jumped from uh, chapter 12 last week to chapter 24. Um, in between those chapters, chapters 13 to 23, Isaiah gives us 10 oracles against 10 nations. And you can see them all right there. God's going to judge the nations, and he does. Right? These judgments happen in history. And you can see the dates that, that these predictions were fulfilled. Isaiah writing about 740 B.C., and, and he's predicting events to come through the Holy Spirit, speaking through him. You look at the ten nations surrounding Jerusalem. You have Babylon, which fell in 539. Assyria, 612. You see the, the scripture references there, too. We're going from 13 to 23. Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Israel. This is the coalition Steve talked about coming against King Ahaz. That coalition will be judged. Egypt. Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. So you can imagine Isaiah is giving this list of nations that will be judged. He's, he's not mailing these off to those kings. He's preaching to the people in Jerusalem. And you have to imagine as they hear this list, they're going, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 Isaiah. Hold on there. Wait. I get that God's going to judge those nations, but why is our nation on the list. Isn't that interesting? See, I think God's actually sending a message. It's kind of tied with the theme of Isaiah, the God we can trust. Isaiah is making a clear statement, and God through Isaiah, that we are not to trust the nations. We are not to trust a nation. There's no nation that is immune. A nation cannot save us. Because God is going to judge the nations. The nations themselves are under the judgment of the Lord. But all these little judgments here, there's ten of them, are all building up to the grand finale at the end of this section of Scripture, which is the final day of judgment where God judges the entire 
earth. And God will judge the whole earth. That's what Isaiah 24 tells us. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 24. We, we get into the passage. Verse 1. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. This is that judgment language that, that you'll see throughout this section. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. So just like God has brought judgment on the nations, God is going to judge the entire earth. And Isaiah makes two things clear. The first thing Isaiah makes clear is, number one, no one will escape. This is verses two and three. Check this out. It'll be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for a servant, for the mistress as for her servant. And so we've got the same for the pastor and the congregation, for the man, for the woman, for the seller, for the buyer, borrower, buyer, for the borrower as for the lender, for the debtor as the creditor. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. So this is, this is the justice of God. God is just, which means he will show no partiality. That's justice. It will be the same. Do you hear it? It'll be the same. It'll be the same. It'll be the same. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Number two, Isaiah tells us that God is clear why judgment is coming. Verse five, the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. So this is why God is going to hold the earth accountable. We as human beings have broken the everlasting covenant. What is the everlasting covenant? This is very interesting. God makes covenants with Israel, with his people. But this everlasting covenant is not a covenant between God and Israel. This is a covenant between God and humanity. And as humans... We have not honored the relationship between creature and creator. We have, not, we have not honored that relationship. We have broken the everlasting covenant, violated the statutes. When it comes to things like truth and justice and love and living a life that glorifies the Lord, we have all fallen short. And Jesus said, even our thoughts make us guilty. So how will we stand on that day of final judgment? Revelation describes the scene going now from the little brother to the big brother. Revelation 20, verse 11. This is what John saw, the end of time. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. God's going to open up the books, the record of our life. But another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death 
and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. This is God's justice. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, listen to this, was thrown into the lake of fire. God is going to judge the whole earth. But what is this book of life? What is the book of life? The book of life is the amazing news that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins cannot be erased by good deeds, but we can be saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. They will not be judged. We will stand on that day, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's that great doctrine of justification by faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're forgiven, we're given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. If you're here today and if you don't know if your name is written in that book, don't leave here today without calling on the name of Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sins. And he will give you the free gift of eternal life forever with Jesus Christ. This, this life can start today and it lasts forever. It's the Lamb's book of life. This is the first end times event unveiled by the prophet Isaiah. God will judge the whole earth. Number two, God will slay the serpent. He's going to slay the serpent. What serpent are we talking about here? Listen to this. This is a head scratcher. Isaiah 27.1. On that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan. Who's this dude? Leviathan. The fleeting serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. What a verse. So who is this Leviathan? Who's this serpent? This dragon that lives in the sea. In uh, ancient mythology, uh, Leviathan was this terrible and mythological sea serpent. And uh, it represented the forces of evil and chaos. In fact, Leviathan actually makes his way into the Old Testament like he does here in Isaiah if you look at Psalm 74, this is interesting. We see uh, in Psalm 74, Leviathan is even there in creation, in the chaotic waters of the sea, and yet God, God defeats the Leviathan as he brings those chaotic waters under control. In the same Psalm, Psalm 
74 uh, picks up the battle between God and Leviathan during the exodus from Egypt as the Egyptians end up at the Red Sea, this chaotic situation and the forces of evil and, and God actually defeats Leviathan by parting the waters of the sea. Who is this Leviathan? I think the fullest answer is given in Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down. The dragon, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan. That's his name right there. That's who we're talking about. The deceiver of the whole world. It says uh, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. It's describing the, the fall of Satan um, when, uh, when he was... Uh, kicked out of heaven and thrown down to the earth. Isn't it interesting? That enemy has been with us since the beginning of creation itself. We don't want to be unaware, church family, of our enemy. I'll never forget a, a time I was walking around in my, my backyard and I heard a hiss of a snake. Have you ever experienced that? I, I've never jumped so high and run so fast in my entire life. I tiptoed back only to see a coiling, hissing, very angry bull snake. Very terrifying moment. What we need to know, friends, is that there is a snake in the garden. There is evil in this world. Satan is real. And he will deceive us with his lies. He wants to destroy our homes and our families. He will infect our hearts with all kinds of pride and temptation. Satan really is the true enemy of our soul. But I want you to know today, he is a defeated foe. And when Jesus died on that cross, he put Satan on blast the best way to put it. Some of you have studied uh, your small group, Victory Over Darkness, right? And maybe you're, you know Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus, listen to this, disarmed the authorities and powers by triumphing over them on the cross. He disarmed them by triumphing over them on the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says that through Jesus' death on the cross, Satan was rendered powerless. In other words, when we as believers put on the full armor of God, Satan can't win the victory. But Isaiah is a describing a day when God will finally and fully finish off that serpent. He will slay the serpent with his strong, mighty sword. He will punish Leviathan, it says, that fleeting serpent, which we read about in Revelation 20.10, when God casts Satan into the lake of fire. And all evil and all the lies and all the darkness will vanish forever from the earth. Hallelujah. What a day that'll be. I think we're going to throw a party. It's going to be some celebration. In fact, God's already put the date on the calendar. That's our next event. That's our third event. Check this out. God has prepared a feast. 
There's a celebration coming. It's going to be a salvation celebration. I love this. Isaiah 25.5 says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. He's preparing a feast. It's going to be a big celebration on that day. I can't wait. What's the biggest celebration you've ever been a part of? Was it your wedding reception? Was it a graduation party? Maybe it was a big birthday party or an anniversary. I couldn't help but remember and think about a Back in youth ministry, we would, had an annual Christmas tradition where we took all of our youth volunteers out to a nice Chinese restaurant. We would get dressed up. We'd go out, get some Chinese. We ordered tons of different plates off the menu. I'm talking sweet and sour, Kung Pao, Mongolian beef. I'm preaching now, yes. <laughs> and at the end, we'd get the uh, Great Wall of Chocolate. Six layers of chocolate cake with chocolate chip icing and the raspberry drizzle. Oh, I hope you're not hungry. <laughs> when you think about your future with God, what do you picture in your mind? Do you picture harps and singing and floating on the clouds. Here comes Isaiah, and he's like, no, 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 no. Heaven is a ticket to a feast. And he's preparing a day where there's going to be a big old long table. And it's going to be full of friends, old and new, family members and loved ones. Who's going to be laughing and celebration and the best food you could imagine. He's prepared a feast for us. I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. Hope we're all there. It's a feast for all peoples. That's what God has in store for us. It's preparing a feast. I think on that day, at that table, we're going to tip our glasses to the host who will be at that table with us, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. He's going to be there. What a day that's going to be. Can't wait. It's our celebration of salvation. You know, when Jesus talked about heaven, when he talked about the kingdom, he would describe it as a feast. Here's Matthew 8.11. Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, another time Jesus was telling a parable, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. 
And then in the book of Revelation, we read Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Heaven's going to be a feast. It's going to be a big old party. Some, sometime I might be in the Chinese food section, maybe the steak section. I don't know. I'm planning it out. So what, what, why are we so blessed? What are we celebrating here? This is the fourth item, number four, fourth end time event unveiled by Isaiah. God will swallow up death forever. How cool is that? Isaiah 25, 7 and 8. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. He has spoken. What will God do on this mountain? What will he bring it into? What does it say, church family? Death. Isaiah says he will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. John says the exact same thing in Revelation 21 when he sees a new heavens and a new earth. He says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Does death bring tears? Absolutely. The last three months, I've been to three funerals, one for a dearly loved family member. We cried, we mourned, we grieved. Death brings all kinds of tears. That we know our life will not be the same again. Sometimes it feels like there's a hole in your heart. And people say, time heals all wounds. Time heals nothing. But Jesus heals. And what we need to do is we need to invite Jesus into our grief and into our tears. The same Jesus that wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He is our healer. And he is our hope. But the Bible pictures death as our enemy. And it's an enemy coming for every one of us. It's an enemy for those who remain brings separation and grief and tears, but it is an enemy that has been overcome in Jesus Christ, who through his death and resurrection, he himself has swallowed up death in victory. How awesome is that? And so the promise of Isaiah 25 is for every believer in Jesus. Death will be defeated. He will swallow up death forever. So what does this mean for Christians who die, for those who are believing in Jesus, who, is, who has been buried and risen from the dead, who is alive? What does this mean for us today when the Christian dies? When a Christian dies, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So when we die, that is not the end. We go to heaven to be with Jesus. But just a few weeks ago, as, as we 
buried a loved one, as we saw that casket close and, and the body go into the ground, isn't there something inside of us in the moment that says, yeah, I know they're going to heaven, but this cannot be the ultimate defeat of death. There has to be more to this story. And indeed, there is more to this story. And Isaiah unveils a fifth event coming at the end of time. And here it is, number five. This is huge. God will resurrect us bodily as he did Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus died, buried, and rose from the dead, there is a day when God will undo death. He will undo all that sorrow and suffering and God will resurrect his people from the dead. Check this out, Isaiah 26, 19. God says through Isaiah, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will will give birth to her dead. What an incredible verse. Are you guys seeing it? This is mind-blowing. The dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Those who lie in the grave will wake up and shout for joy. Come on. See, Isaiah's vision for the future here. And yes, right, when we die, we go to heaven. But Isaiah's ultimate vision for the future is not just about going to heaven when we die. It's ultimately about a new creation. God will fulfill all of his plans and purposes for this created world. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Behold, God says, I'm making a new heavens and a new earth. That's our ultimate hope. This is what, what's talked about in Isaiah 65, 17 and Revelation 21, 1. Again, the book of Revelation. John's brought to a, a mountain and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is incredible. Romans 8, 23, another verse. See, not only is creation waiting for that day, when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, we ourselves are groaning inwardly for that day. Romans 8, 23. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, the bodily resurrection. For in this hope we were saved. This is our hope, that God is going to make all things new. So how how does this resurrection body, I think this is the question here, how does the resurrection body fit in with this whole life after death? And so I want to just kind of explain this. See, the Bible tells us that after death, we as believers go to be with Jesus which Paul actually says is far better. So that's going to be pretty amazing, just to go, to be in the very presence of God. That's that's our hope. 
And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5. But as Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5, he said his longing is not to be disembodied, but to be re-embodied, or as he says it, not to be unclothed, but to be more fully clothed. He's speaking of this resurrection body. In fact, the, the bodily resurrection is even in the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if you're familiar, it's the, the, one of the oldest creeds of the church. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That is our hope. It's embodied in, in the creed. Which is, this means our ultimate hope rests on Christ's return in glory. The judging of the dead the slaying of the serpent, God putting an end to all sorrow, suffering, and death, and the resurrection of our bodies to live with God forever in the new creation, this new heavens, and this new earth. That is our story. See, we know the end of the story. And it is right here, friends. It's the truth that Jesus wins. He wins. At the end of the day, it's not our fears that win. Jesus is going to win. Yes, as we go through the story, there are some scary chapters. Right? Sometimes there is a, there is a beast on the cover of that movie. But we don't have to be afraid when the chapter looks a little scary. When the fear rises up, when the pressures mount, when it feels like parts of our life are falling into pieces. Because that's not the end of the story. Yes, we have fears. But it's time to turn our fears into faith. It's time to memorize scriptures. Like our kids are doing downstairs, like Isaiah 12.3. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Next time Satan tries to give you some fear, how about you give him Isaiah 12, 3 back? Hey, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. See, Satan can't deceive you if the truth is within you. We don't have to live in fear. We can turn those fears into faith. Because at the end of the story, it's not our fears that win. It's Jesus who wins. He is our salvation. So let's review these five end-time events. Thanks for hanging in there with me. God will judge the whole earth. God will slay the serpent. He's prepared a feast. He will swallow up death forever. Wipe away the tears from our eyes. And God will resurrect us bodily. This is our hope for the future. But it's also our hope for today. This hope is real. And Jesus proved it by dying and by rising from the dead. This is our future, family of God. Right in the middle of Isaiah's apocalypse... I can't leave this out. It's one of my favorite verses. Here's another one to memorize. Isaiah 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed on you. This is the battle, isn't it? It's a battle of the mind. It's a battle of trusting in Jesus. What God says, he says, I'll keep you in perfect peace. The word is shalom, shalom, perfect peace. If you'll keep your mind fixed on me today. Why? Because he trusts in you. This is the peace we can have as we trust in Jesus Christ. We keep our mind fixed on him. What God wants us to know today is that we can have peace as we trust in him. And there is no fear of the future because truly the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious future you have for the children of God. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our salvation. We know that on our own, we could never be good enough. We could never be righteous enough. But you did what we could never do. And you paid that price by going to the cross. So today, God, if there's anyone here who's never said yes to you, we just pray that this would be the moment. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's not just a promise for our salvation, but that's a promise for every moment of every day. Sometimes the hardest words to say are just, I trust you, Jesus. And we know the, the fears are real but we also know you're more powerful than all of those fears. So I pray, God, that today as we look to you, that you would fill our hearts with your shalom, shalom. Give us your perfect peace so that we don't walk in fear anymore, but we walk in the glorious confidence of people who are, have already won the victory because Jesus won the ultimate victory. Thank you for the hope of eternal life, of a new creation, of a feast and a celebration. God, we are full of joy thinking about that day today. There's no better response than just to trust and obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way, and you will see us through. You will be our salvation. So we thank you for that, Jesus. In your name we pray.